So welcome to another episode of The Unfinished Cubby, a podcast about philosophy, purpose and meaning and about finding and maintaining balance in your life. With me today is the creator of the lecture series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, John Vivesi. Thanks for joining me today, John. Uh, thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, we, we've switched from a very um, chaotic but personal thing to, and then I've gone from a formal script. Um, <laughs> did that feel strange to you? A, a little strange, yeah. uh, but uh, it's okay. I, I, I mean, uh, part of what's happening with me a lot these days is I'm finding myself uh, rapidly having to switch hats. Oh, yes. uh, I have an academic hat and I have an online hat. Uh, and then I also am sort of teaching people, you know, mindfulness practices and wisdom cultivation practices. And I'm also trying to build communities. So I'm switching between hats and uh, it's uh, so that um, I guess chaos is becoming a little bit more familiar to me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm endeavoring to not get uh, confused by it or to put on the wrong hat at the wrong time. Um, and I'm relying uh, on um, my family and friends to help keep me centered and grounded. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm realizing the correct role in the correct situation. Um, it, it's interesting because um, I hope this is true. It seems to me to be true that I'm getting more empathy for a wider variety of people uh, because of this. Cool. Um, and th this is um, relatively new. And is it um, largely in relation to the release of Awakening series that? Um... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I was used to, uh, you know, the academic hat um, and the teacher hat. Um, but uh, when um, when I released Awakening for the Meaning Crisis and then all the series afterwards, the voices with Verveki and Untangling the World Knot and the Elusive Eye, and towards a metapsychology, all these theories, um, but especially awakening from the meaning crisis, there's tremendous, um, yeah, tremendous sense of exposure, uh, and um, which was quite, quite uh, almost terrifying initially for me. Uh, there was a sense of, because uh, I'm sort of socially phobic uh, <laughs> by disposition, which is why I went into teaching, of course. Um, and so that, that really has put me very much into kind of a uh, sink or swim situation that I did not foresee. I had incorrectly thought that releasing the lecture series would be pretty equivalent to giving a lecture series at a university. Um, and of course, while there are important similarities, there were unforeseen important differences that I'm learning to adapt to. And is, is that in the, the, the following fame uh, or, or more than just that? Um, it's that for sure, but it's also uh, bringing more mindful awareness um, to the differences that are created, afforded by the different media and the different kind of people that I'm interacting with. So I'm interacting with people that are neither my colleagues, academic colleagues, or nor my students. Um, they often have an intimate knowledge of me that I do not have of them when I meet them, right? <laughs> sure. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought about that a lot, actually, because um, 
and, and I, I said, I sort of made some notes and things and I was just like, but that's bizarre for me to go and sort of start discussing with you. Like, it feels like we've been having a conversation to me and obviously you're just meeting yeah. me for the very yeah. first time right now. Yeah. Um, so that, those are a lot of differences for me. Um, typically my, my students and I meet each other at the same time or I meet my colleagues and we start working together and we have a history together. Um, and so, and you can imagine, you can imagine, and, and, and it's never been anything other than good faith, good intention when I meet people, but you can imagine my sense of, again, exposure, because mm. people seem to have this sense of intimate connection to me, and I'm just meeting them for the first time. So I've had to adapt to that uh, as well. Uh, what has helped is um, how kind and respectful and encouraging uh, all my interlocutors have been, and I'm for which I'm uh, deeply appreciative. Awesome. Hey, um, John, I wanted to start with asking you a little bit about your your life, your background. What sort of brought you to, let's say, to to teaching first of all? Uh, well, what brought me to teaching is um, in grade three. <laughs> uh, they used to let me teach some of the classes, and I got labeled uh, the mini teacher. Um, and, um, so teaching is something that I've been called to, uh, for a very long time in my life. So, um, I've always wanted to teach. It wasn't clear to me what that teaching would be. And like I said, part of that in my personal history was trying to figure out how somebody who's was by nature quite shy and withdrawn as an introverted child, um, uh, was going to be a teacher. And so working that out was one sort of aspirational task that I've been journeying on. Um, but then why I ended up teaching what I teach, what I, what I'm teaching, that's a different story. Um, and I don't know if you want to get into that story as well. I, I think I'd love to, but I do want to ask you first, what you taught when you were in grade three. Um, I, well, at grade three, you don't have sort of defined subjects, at least in Canada. It's more this sort of homogenous blob of things you should know. <laughs> um, and which was uh, looking back, I had an, uh, I, I mean, she might even be dead now. Uh, her name was uh, Ms. Bartman and she was just, she was one of those teachers um, that all you can say is just lucky to have, I'm lucky to have met her. The fact that I remember her name tells you the impact that she made on me. And I actually had her for both grade three and grade five, which is extremely fortunate for me. Um, and so I remember her asking me, you know, we'd read a story and for me to teach about the story um, or, or, or things like that. I remember one report card I read by her. Uh, she said, John will often tell me when I'm using psychology with, the, with, uh, with uh, <laughs> his fellow students in the class. Um, so um, I, I have memories of sort of talking to her about, you know, some of what she taught. Um, her father was an artist and like many young children, but I guess, especially because of my nascent scientific interest, I, I was fascinated by dinosaurs and he, 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 he drew sort of uh, some, uh, a picture of dinosaurs for me and uh, a, a sort of history of evolution of life on earth. Um, it had a huge impact on me. Cool. Um, May I ask there, just you mentioned the psychology, what um, uh, work did your folks do? What was your early introduction to psychology there? It did not Good come question. from 
yeah. it did not come from my uh, from my family. Um, maybe in a bit from my mom. My mom would read some books uh, a little bit about um, psychology from the sort of self help angle. Um, my dad, not much. My dad, my my dad was um, the best thing you could call him is sort of a handyman. Um, and my mom was uh, what used to be called a housewife, a homemaker, stay home mom. She would work periodically, uh, part time. We were quite poor, um, and I was brought up both within my nuclear family and in my extended family with a um, a very rigid kind of fundamentalist Christianity uh, oh, yes. that yes. really sort of, uh, I mean, I'm grateful to it because you're you, like, we have a mother tongue. We have a mother religion that gives us a taste for the transcendent. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for being exposed to, you know, some sacred literature and um, the project of meaning and connectedness and sacredness and wisdom. Um, but I also, um, and this I only understood this in retrospect. I also came to see how much I was traumatized, often terrified by this framework. And um, so there was a long struggle for me to get free from it. And then as that unfolded, to try and properly address the taste for self-transcendence, the taste for meaning and wisdom, the taste for depth uh, that my upbringing had left in me and to see if there was a way of doing that that was viably integratable with my uh, calling to teaching and to science, which was also clear uh, in me from very early age. So trying to get all of that together has been uh, my personal project, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then the, the thing about me that is also lucky, and it didn't have to turn out this way. I found that as I worked that through, and as I worked that through both personally, existentially on one side and academically on another side, some of the problems I was considering and some of the integrated answers I was trying to bring to bear on it, I started to share that a bit with my students in other courses. And I noticed that that was the stuff they were really getting keenly mm. interested in. And so more and more, I started to expand that. And then I was one of my uh, uh, colleagues, uh, Evan Thompson, who I know quite well, uh, I consider him a friend. Um, he was he was formerly a colleague at U of T and he went to uh, the UBC. He, uh, he was supposed to teach a course on Buddhism and cognitive science and he couldn't do it because of scheduling. And they asked him, well, who else could possibly teach this course? And he said, well, John Verveke could teach it. So I took up that course and I was initially going to do, well, you know, here's what some cognitive scientists are saying about Buddhism. Here's what some Buddhists, you know, the typical kind of academic thing. And then I realized, but John, you've, you've been attracted to Buddhism and cognitive science and particularly they, you're attracted to how they're attracted together. And why is that? And then it had to do about this, this, this thing, these things I was wrestling with, about how to integrate spirituality in a scientific worldview and I realized, well, maybe they're coming together. Maybe this isn't just a problem idiosyncratic to me. Maybe many people are in, and I started to develop that course. And as I developed that course and I developed related courses on altered states of consciousness and my, mindfulness meditation and the psychology of wisdom, I just took all of that and integrated it into awakening from the meaning crisis. Cool. You, were you, um, 
were you already doing Vipassana, practicing Vipassana at that stage? You mentioned that quite a oh, lot. Oh, yes. I've yeah, been yeah. doing that. Yeah, so. I've been doing, I've been doing uh, Vipassana, Metta, Tai Chi Chuan, and related Qigong and things like that for uh, 30 years. And what, what um, brought you to those things early on? Well, what was interesting is, so I was in high school where, of course, this frequently happens to people with that particular meaning crisis that I talked about earlier hit me, right? And, you know, it was actually a science fiction book by Roger Zelazny that sort of opened up my mind and made me realize. What's the uh, book? I have a, a really excellent discussion with Damien Walters about how science fiction uh, sort of takes the role of mythology in our culture. And Roger Zelazny's, he, he, the, one of the core things he was trying to do in his, uh, his form of science fiction was to try and sort of weave together mythology and science. Um, and so this book opened me up to the, that possibility and, uh, and Buddhism and Hinduism. And it was like, and then I read Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I was going like this, right? In high school, that's what led me out. But then I was hungry, like I said, I was like, okay, yes, so no to that, but but I don't want to say no to meaning and connected. I wouldn't, I didn't have that language now. I'm this is mm-hmm. retrospectively, right? Mm-hmm. And then what happened is I went into university and I took an introduction to philosophy course and I met Socrates in the Republic by Plato. And it was that, that is what I want and what I'm looking for. But the thing is, even though the name philosophy means the love of wisdom, the topic of wisdom falls off the table after first year university, after, after that mm. course, mm. there was no courses on wisdom. There was no course on the philosophical traditions like Stoicism and Epicureanism and Neoplatonism in which the cultivation of wisdom was central. It, it, you, you basically do some Plato, some Aristotle, and then you leap to Descartes, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and it's like, whoa. And so I continued on in the philosophy because I found the skills that it was giving me like, and, and the, the meta-scientific reflection, the meta-cultural reflection, all of that was valuable. But the hunger for that transformative process by which we aspire to wisdom and cultivate virtue was not being met. And so down the street from me literally was a place, the Tai Chi and Meditation Center, where they taught an ecology of practices, Vipassana, Meta, some related Qigong, and Tai Chi Chuan. And I wow. went there and so as I started doing those things, I started realizing, oh, this is what I want. And I dove into the, those practices deeply, you might even say religiously. Um, but then what started to happen is I discovered, after I'd finished my MA in philosophy, I discovered this new discipline, cognitive science, that was talking about things more like the way Plato talked about them. Because in Plato, there's no clear distinction between philosophy and Mm. psychology and transformation, right? They're all woven together in this magnificent tapestry. And so I started to do cognitive science. And as I was doing cognitive science, cognitive science was going through this transformation in which topics like, and Evan Thompson was one of the people doing this, topics like mindfulness and self-transcendence and wisdom were now becoming bonafide uh, academic topics. So I started teaching about these things academically and studying them scientifically. So it was just for me that everything came together like this. And then, right, I it just like I, I'm very grateful for that. I, I did not engineer this, right? I'm uh, I, I I am 
exceedingly lucky, fortuitous that things unfolded that way for me. I um, I had a, this sounds like a leap, but it comes back. I had a psychotic episode in uh, my early 20s and mm-hmm. yeah. um, the experience of unfiltered stimulus and constant connections was was really profound and yes um the early parts especially of your talks in the way of the constant connections you you sound like a crazy person there it's like this 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 (laughs) the difference of course is it's it's coherent um um but yeah no that's uh, yeah it's absolutely incredible i think and i certainly recommend awakening from the meaning crisis to anyone um and especially the early lectures the the way that you just pull together so many threads and just make this very coherent picture of of all of these diverse things and i also feel like um you talk about flow a lot um interconnectedness and um i also the the lectures you're demonstrating the topic as you're doing it, as you're talking about flow. It's an incredible example of flow. Um, yes, thank you. That's, yeah. that's, that's very much the case. Um, I very often get into the flow state when I'm lecturing. Um, and, and the reverse is the case. Lecturing, the best lecturing is to share teaching and transformation with your students rather than think you're thinking of giving them information. Mm-hmm. Um, so very much when I am lecturing about this stuff, it's reactivating the, the, the transformational processes that I myself am, have gone through or I'm going through. So I often get insight. So I often get insights that reverberate back. And so this loop is created, which um, is facilitated and empowered uh, the degree to which I can get into the flow state. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm up to, I think, number 35 uh, at the moment. So I've... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and and look, I mean that says a lot. That's the thirty-five hours of, of of my time in 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 recent months. That and 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 I I'm like, all right, I'm going for a big drive now. I get to to do another uh, meaning crisis <laughs> thing. So, um, and yeah, it's it's very much in the thick of at the moment where I'm up to that. Um, the word you use is participatory, um, and yes. I think yeah, basically yes. the, the core of a lot of it at the moment is just that life is not subject object but yes. a yes. constant interplay um yes. i thought because i get to talk to you um that i might cheat and see if i could skip to the end and ask um if if you provide an answer for um finding meaning and if that's something that we could talk about today um it's certainly for me personally something of of huge i i, it, I yeah I, i'm sure you know Many, many people uh, 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 hunger for meaning, for some kind of answer. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I realize those are two different things. But yeah, what, what answer do you have to that? Well, uh, so uh, th- I don't have like the answer, if the answer means what is the meaning of life, because I don't think such a, sort of a metaphysical entity exists, or I'm very suspicious uh, of that. Uh, um, Instead, and I'm not the only person studying this, increasingly, we can talk about meaning in life. Uh, Susan Wolf uh, brought that out in her book named Meaning in Life and Why It Matters. And then you have psychologists studying it. Um, and so the answer, the answer is, is more like this. 
Um, you're, at, you're in like episode 35, and I'm talking a lot about this process of relevance realization and how we're constantly sort of evolving, in it, not, not biologically, but cognitively, our, our, our fittedness uh, to our, our environment. We're creating that salience landscape, and we're shaping it, and it's shaping us and all of that. And so you've got this dynamic looping, uh, this dynamic connectedness um, in, in the kind of cognitive science I do. It's often referred to as like coupling. And, and, and this, this harkens back to like uh, biblical metaphors of a kind of knowing that's like, you know, sexual intercourse, right? When you're making love with somebody, you're not just doing things to them and they're not just doing things to you, right? And you're not just sort of exchanging. There's this reciprocal mutual opening and, right? And so that, that is the fundamental way I would argue in which we are intelligent cognitive agents, that self-organizing dynamical looping process between the dynamics of the brain's self-organization and the dynamics of the world's self-organization. And that's very much analogous to the way living things are constantly shaping themselves to the environment and constantly shaping the environment to them. So there's a deep continuity to use uh, Evan Thompson's idea between being alive and being cognitive. So all of that, I have a lot of argument for that. I'm just summarizing it. So yes, yes, I yes, yes. I hope people don't <laughs> think I'm, John's just saying crap. No, I mean, <laughs> right, that's not happening. I, so, but the, the point is, and here's the central idea. And it came up on, on earlier things in the Buddhism, right? The, the Buddhism episodes and the mindfulness episodes, the very processes that make us adaptive, this constant, constant, evolving adapted fittedness they make us prone to self-deceptive self-destructive behavior and that self-deceptive self-destructive behavior of course is in itself intrinsically bad for us it's self-deceptive self-destructive it's pernicious uh, and it's pernicious in, in in a particular way um, think about how let's use the metaphor of being in a romantic relationship with somebody, someone you couple with, and then you start getting into all kinds of self-deceptive, self-destructive patterns. You're going to uncouple from them reliably. That's what therapy is all about. You're going to uncouple from them. And so it's not just that it's self-deceptive, self-destructive abstractly, this, this foolishness that we're prone to, it, it, it cuts off all the ways in which we seek out a fundamental connectedness to other people, but we're also always, for very similar reasons, seeking out a fundamental connectedness to ourselves and to the world. Those three forms of connectedness are all interdependent and inter... I couldn't properly connect to you if I'm fundamentally disconnected from myself, and I also can't connect to you and myself if I'm not properly connected to the world, and they all interpenetrate. So what happens is all of these this triangle of connectedness, if I can put it that way, gets undermined by foolishness. Now, it turns out there's good argument and evidence that that sense of connectedness is exactly what we mean when we use the metaphor of meaning in life. Our lives are meaningful to the degree to which we have an evolving connectedness to ourselves, to each other in the world in a way in which those three are mutually affording and mutually supporting each other. But foolishness corrodes that and undermines it. We get into ways in which we are start turning fundamentally and perniciously lose touch with ourselves and or others and or the world. And this is how people come to lose meaning. It's not about having a particular set of beliefs. I, I can't give you a proposition 
that will, and you'll go, right, that's it, right? I, I think anybody who offers you that, uh, you should suspect them, either they're deeply self-deceived or they're trying to get something from you. So the reason for that is the following, this connectedness, this evolving dynamic connectedness that is lost in foolishness, right? It's not primarily generated by the level of our propositional thinking. That's not what's primarily, our propositional thinking depends on much deeper processes that get all this connectedness going. I use a word for this, and I use this word deliberately. I use the word religio, which mm. means connectedness, but it's also one of the potential etymological origins of the word religion. When we find things sacred, whether or not we're secular or religious, when we find things sacred, the birth of my child was a sacred event. Why? Because you feel fundamentally connected. You feel like you are connected to some or something that is beyond your egocentric concerns. You matter to something other than yourself, right? And so the word that has been used across cultures for addressing that self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior that's very complex and going on largely beneath our propositional thinking and affording, enhancing that non-propositional cognition that makes us feel connected. The word for that is wisdom. So now I can give you what the meaning crisis is in a sentence. It is a wisdom famine. So the answer isn't a proposition. The answer is, what? how can we use the best cognitive science to come up with the best ecology of practices for helping people recover in a viable manner and a shareable manner, the cultivation of wisdom. That's what the series ends with. But the series is not complete because that's why I'm doing other things. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm doing all this work to try and give people practices. I taught all during COVID. I taught uh, online meditation and contemplation course. Then I followed that up with a cultivation of wisdom course. I've been doing a whole bunch of projects and doing workshops on how we can practice uh, uh, dialectic into dialogos, how we can use not just individual cognition, but networked, distributed cognition to turn our intelligence, not our individual intelligence, but, but our collective intelligence into wisdom cultivation. There isn't a single answer. There isn't a single practice because there are many practices from many traditions and many emerging practices, and they can be configured in many different ways, all of which can, in terms of cognitive science, be, be vetted as legitimate and reliable and pursuable. Cool. That, that was um, that was a good answer. Thank you. Uh, there's a, the, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the, <laughs> there's a couple of things I want to just just pick out a little bit. Um, uh, terms like uh, self delusion, self deception, foolishness. Um, there's a suggestion that there's a, a correct way of being. And acting, and 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 then I, you know, I think what you're saying that that is the cultivation of wisdom is the, mm. um, and what makes that inherently correct is, um, just the fact that there is um, the greater sense of connection and and therefore greater right. sense of well-being. Yes. So let's talk about that. Let's talk. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about it first in cognitive terms. 
um, making use of the work of Marlo Ponti, who's a philosopher who has a huge impact on the kind of the kind of cognitive science I do for e-cognitive science, embodied, embedded, inactive, and extended. Um, basically, the main slogan of this is. Cognition isn't in your head. It's between your embodied brain and the world in that loop, right? That's the main difference. So when we, when you, when we say a better way, and this is part of, this actually feeds into trying to reconceptualize what the sacred means, right? What's the best way for me to grip this object? Well, this is what you should say. Uh, it depends on what you're going to do with it. Right, it depends on what you're going to do with it. So Marlo Ponti had this point about what we're constantly doing is we're trying to get what he called an optimal grip. He doesn't always mean physically gripping. So let's do it visual. Like, should I be really close and get the details? Should I be very far and get the gestalt? Should I hold it still to emphasize its structure, or should I move it to get a key understanding of its dynamics? And what you should say to me, it depends on. And here's what I was talking about depends on what's relevant to you, right? What's the relevant? This is, I, this is why I call this whole process relevance realization. So your optimal grip is constantly going to evolve just like an organism's adaptive nature, its adaptive fittedness to its environment is going to constantly evolve across time. Is why, you know, animals evolve, organisms evolve, right? In the same way, obviously much more rapidly, you are constantly in by constantly moving and adjusting your sensory motor loop, you're constantly adjusting your grip on anything in order to best fit to what is relevant in that situation. And when you are doing that more and more comprehensively um, in your life, you like your life. You fall in love with the world. Uh, you get something like what happens when you're making love as opposed to just having sex with somebody. You know, you, when you're making love to somebody, they start, you, right? You start to open up to them, which affords them opening up to you. And you get this reciprocal opening as you afford each other getting a more and more optimal grip, no pun intended, an optimal grip on each other, right? And that's, that's part of love. And, and we, don't, we don't try to justify that. We don't say, and why? Should we be in love with things? What's the reason for that? We go, no, we, we're in love with things because that's intrinsically good. Part of what I'm saying is it's intrinsically good because it's constitutive of us getting, a, like it's, it's, our, it's part of our sense that we, we, are on a, we're, we have an optimal grip on the world. We're connected. The world is flowing and like we're flowing into the world and the world is flowing into us, right? And so we want this. And we want it for its own sake. And we should. It's completely understandable why we should. The thing it most <clears throat> brings to mind in me, the thing it most connects with in, in my mind is like religious or spiritual concepts. It sounds similar to, you know, if you're diverging, for, like, like sin is when you're not. Um, oh, yeah. You're seeing the mark. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's right, and or 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 then like um, you know the Tao is is when you're completely in the flow and you know mm -hmm. so yeah. Um, well, can I play with both of those for a minute? Please, yeah. Well, think about uh, I think it's hamartia when you're missing the mark. I did some archery because I wanted to understand this, right? I wanted to understand it perspectively and participatory, not just propositionally, right? Nice. And you can't understand skills, right, unless you do them, 
right? And so I did. And the thing about archery is if you aim where you're thinking is the target, you'll actually miss the target because of the way your vision is skewed, right? So the wrong thing is salient to you. And what you have to do is you have to get an intervening skill that says, no, no, shoot, right, this far away. And then you have to learn how to, you know, calibrate that, that displacement given how far away you are and the strength of the bow and all of this stuff until that's why it's hard. If you could just shoot where you see, everybody would be great. <laughs> so we miss the mark. And this is part, this is an actually an excellent metaphor for self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, sin. Because what happens when we're self-deceived and self-deceptive, we don't lie to each other. That's a bad metaphor. You can't lie to yourself. But what you can do is you can miss the mark. You can make some, your, the processes that are trying to realize what's relevant to you are foregrounding th some things, backgrounding others, making something salient rather than others, right? And the thing about that is you can, you can disconnect your salience tracking from your tracking of reality. Uh, uh, so um, this was made uh, very famous in a, in, and I'm not trying to be vulgar here, but Harry Frankfurt wrote a book called On Bullshit. And bullshitting is different from lying. The liar is depending on manipulating you by trying to get you to believe that something is true. The bullshit artist is trying to get you to disconnect what you find salient from your understanding of what's real or true. And advertising is a, a clear example of that. Advertising makes things salient in a way that is disconnected from whether or not the claims are particularly true right? Or, or that you particularly understand what's going on. Do you honestly believe that wearing this shampoo, using this shampoo will transform your life and people will relate to you differently? Like it's no, it's mm, right. But the, the shampoo commercial makes salient, right? The beauty of this person and this wonderful background, of this sweeping music. And so we buy the product because the salience has been disconnected from the reality that's bullshitting and we do this with our attention all the time we we can find the wrong thing salient and we can forget to check so the person shooting at the bullseye right this area in its visual field is salient to them but if they don't correct for that they will miss the mark and they will think they are shooting at their target and they will miss the mark we are doing that all the time. And so, and I don't mean to invoke Christianity here. I don't mean to deny it either. Um, um, I have a respectful relationship with Christianity, I hope. Um, but we're doing that all the time. We're sinning all the time in that sense. The Tao is the same thing, like you said. So when you're doing Tai Chi Chuan and you're, and right, you have to do, you have to do like push hands, you have to do a lot of other things. You have to learn, right, that, Right. You, you know what weapons focus is like when 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 people when when people are held up by somebody that has a gun and the police come and they all right ask for sure. they, they can't describe the person but they can give you a really sure. accurate description of the gun which is largely useless because the gun is super salient and they hyper focus on it it's the same thing when like you're supposed to when you're when you're sparring you 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 you, you can't just have a like remember with the the pencil I can't just have a wide open view and I can't just have a focus view. I have to constantly do this, yeah. constantly flow it, yeah. 
or else I'll miss the mark. It's one of the things you can do with people, right? Uh, and it's legitimate because, you know, barring ethical constraints, you know, sparring is pretty open, right? When somebody does something, compliment them. <laughs> Say, that was a really great block. How did you do that? <laughs> and then they'll be like... <laughs> And then they'll hyper focus on the right, block. right, 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 right. They'll yeah. lose the optimal grit and they'll start to choke, <laughs> right? And things like that. So, both, I'm not saying that Christianity and Taoism are equal or anything like that, but they're both in different ways converging on this idea about how we deceive ourselves. Now, that's not because we're evil. We have to do that, we have to focus our attention. Notice right now what's happening with your attention, I hope, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. Part of you is doing this, and think about how this is like evolution. Part of you is selecting and trying to focus your attention on me, but part of you is opening up in variation. What, what else is, where is this going? What's John saying? And what should I say? And what should I do? And you're trying to, you're doing this, right? You're doing this. I am. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, that, and that makes you adaptive. Mm. But think about the, the, you know, think about how. That, that process of constantly manipulating your salience also makes you constantly prone to missing the mark, mm. to losing the Tao. The very thing, the very processes that make you so adaptively intelligent are the very same processes that make you perennially prone to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. And that behavior undermines the connectedness that makes your life worth living. People will take significant damages to their standard of living and their subjective sense of well-being good evidence for this if they believe it's meaningful mm -hmm. if they have that sense of connectedness of mattering but you can fill them with affluence and if they lose that sense of mattering of connectedness of being in touch with what's real they will fall into despair or endless distraction from despair mm. um can can we play with this some more? Um, yeah, and it, I, I love, I love, I love serious play. I think we should always engage in serious play. Cool, and it, you know, I, I, I have, I have a strong personal interest in my own. You know, this, there's, there's some bits and pieces of sticking points for this, and and it's funny. I kind of go into, I, do, I go into, a, and I've got it. You know, it's like, all right, and and then back out of a, well. And and a part of a sticking point is is the notion that there's there's some kind of right to this, and and that's tied in for me. I also have um, a, a strong Lutheran uh, background. Um, yes. yep, yeah, yep. yeah. My uh, mother's father was a missionary, actually, and I've I've actually done some mission work myself in Liberia. Um, post post when I was actually Christian, but um, still connected to the church and able to do that. But um, Recently, like in, in the last year, I've been doing bits and pieces of been, been doing some therapy, seeing counsellor and things that I've always known about. You, you spoke about the trauma from yep. religious doctrine, like and I've kind of spoken about like I've, I've kind of had an awareness of, you know, that I, that's not a great thing. And I'll give an example in a moment. So it's clear what I'm talking about. But in actually doing some counselling, then it's apparent actually how impactful that is how interwoven that is and and how damaging um and probably a, a really good example is um uh 
and I, I think you talk about it in Awakening from the Meaning Crisis as well, although possibly not. But um, the, uh, you, you were born in sin. Uh, sorry. sorry for interrupting, Chris. Yes. Uh, Chris, sorry for interrupting. Uh, I've lost signal. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. Are you hearing me okay? okay. Are you hearing me? Um, you're fro you've been frozen. You've been frozen uh, and, and choppy. So I lost okay. a little bit uh, in there. Uh, okay, interesting. Everything seems okay now. Yeah, you're coming through perfectly fine. Um, I have so, no idea. Presumably. I still got good signal strength. I've still got good signal strength. So, I mean, it could be anywhere in a bunch okay. of intervening variables. All right. Uh, so, sorry for interrupting, but I didn't want to lose the thread. Um, that's so right. No, I, thank I, I you. I think I was going on a bit of a tangent anyway. Uh, but I wanted to say, like, one, one of the very... His word fundamental teachings in Lutheranism and a lot of Christianity is that you were born in sin. As a, as a human, you are inherently sinful and wrong, and there is no redemption for you. It is only through God. And um, that's obviously a, like an incredibly disempowering thing to embrace, um, yeah. you, you know, removes any sense of agency or also of, of worth. It's also saying you're, you're wrong. Um, and I, I recognize even, um, and, and I also, look, I also have a, 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 a loving respect for, for Christianity as well. I sort of, um, I, I don't mean to disparage uh, purely, but, but, you know, what I'm saying is still true. Um, where do I want to go with this? The, those ideas, I think of right and wrong as well, right? That's a very big part of the mythos. So, so deep. There is, there is. Yeah. God who is good and there is the devil and temptation that is wrong, um, which is what we're talking about as well, right? But but I I question and and you know with, with other teachings and ideas like because even without like that stuff gets embedded right when it's when it's given to you over and over and as a child it's in there deep and you can't just think differently when you're older. So that notion that concept of right and wrong and and the the fear of Am I going to get this wrong? Am I like, that's so deep within me. And it's, it's difficult for me to know what truth there is in that idea and how much of it is a pure narrative that's actually not helpful for, or, or not, let's see, not, yeah, not, not reflective of a, a deeper reality perhaps as well. I'm going to stop talking there because I'm going and let you respond to anything you choose to. Well, I, I think that's very important. Um... I think, and I talk about Luther in this series, and I should have talked also more oh, yeah. about Calvin. Calvin, Calvinism and Cartesianism both are addressing in different ways the, uh, that kind of fundamental anxiety about getting it wrong. Uh, and they both offer claims, different, different sources of the claim, but they're both claiming a kind of certainty, the certainty of uh, an unquestionable faith or the certainty of unquestionable argumentation. Um, and if what you're asking from me is, uh, is there a way of obtaining this certainty? Um, I would say that's a, that's a, actually a very poorly posed question because it's like for me asking what's North of the North pole. Um, I think the issues that are creating the anxiety are not going to be alleviated by the pursuit of certainty precisely because, um, what the history of, science 
Um, and I would also argue that you know, the last four centuries of religion have shown us is that such pursuit of certainty um, uh, has not produced it and often inflicted an increase in suffering mm. all around. Um, but, so both forms of fundamentalism within religion and scientism, I'm a scientist, I love and believe in science. I don't believe in a kind of, you know, science gives us the, the way things are right now, absolutely. It's like, you haven't studied the history of science. You just haven't paid it. Science is a process, the best, one of the best processes we have for constantly self-correcting and self-transcending our knowledge claims. And I would argue that the best religion is a self-correcting process for constantly improving our cultivation of wisdom. And then what I would say to you is, what are the best processes in terms of an optimal grip on the world, uh, right, uh, for truth and knowledge and an optimal grip on your optimal grip for mm -hmm. wisdom and virtue? What is, and this is a kind of philosophical pragmatism, uh, what are the best, most reliable processes within you and between you and other people and you observe in other people for giving you, in a coupled fashion, the ongoing self-correction of your knowledge claims and the ongoing self-correction of your cultivation of wisdom, your overcoming of ignorance and your overcoming of foolishness. Don't tell me what you believe. Tell me what you practice and why you have good reason and evidence to believe that those practices are reducing your ignorance and reducing your foolishness. Keep moving away from ignorance and foolishness. Stop trying to say, I need to see the perfect destination and know that it's there for certain, or I shouldn't move, that's, I would say, is false. If you are reliably getting less ignorant and less foolish, your life is going to be filled with more truth and more meaning, not only your life, but the way it touches other people's lives. And what else needs less justification than that? That's also a very good answer. I the yeah i think if i if i can poke at this one more time just to see um please we we, uh, we, yeah. we should right i i don't want to I, I hope i'm not doing this i don't want to ever bully anybody into i, I want people to constantly probe yeah right, good no it's there's in me that there's a real um struggle around the this because what I'm hearing, like, so first of all, you, you make, you know, what could possibly, how could you possibly argue against the pursuit of wisdom and, and therefore happiness in one's life to summarize what you just said? Yeah, uh, yeah no, um, but, but there's something in me that just like rebels against the notion of the, there's, there's a right, there's a getting it right. And I rebel against it for the reason that I gave of like, that's so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. What do you what do you say to that? That there's a that you're getting it right well, or wrong. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to when when normative terms are used like right and wrong as opposed to descriptive terms, uh, you should ask what is the normative theory behind this. And I'm proposing to you that the normative theory behind this is right a, a kind of certainty that what we're after is an absolute kind of security. Um, and, and that's based on a deeper presupposition that what's ultimately real um, is that which grounds certainty. Uh, and, and this is a notion of sort of perfection, 
that the sacred is that which is perfect. Uh, and somebody whose work I love and I am devoted to, Plato, I, but that's one thing I criticize Plato for, for sort of giving us that notion. Although the more recent scholarship suggests that maybe that's an incorrect reading of Plato, which I'm happy about, by the way. Um, so, like, maybe you rebel against the idea of there being a right because of a right way, although I suspect that you still want uh, your your you know your knowledge to be true your experiences to be beautiful and your actions to be good um and so you're trying to figure out how can i'm suggesting to you i could be wrong i'm suggesting to you you're trying to figure out how can i pursue what's true good and beautiful without losing a living relationship to them without being bound to some external authority telling me uh, what they finally and absolutely are. I actually, I think this is what maybe I'm, I'm wrong. Oh, well, yeah. well, yeah. No, this, this is what I'm thinking now. I, I think um, there's two very different discussions that are um, conflated in my mind. Oh, cool. Yeah. So one is um, about finding meaning, and very much like a. a like, all right, how do I interact in the world? What, it, you know, what is this? And, and, and the kind of things that you speak about very much. There's a separate, I think, philosophical question about what is this place? Why are we here? What's like the meaning of life in it? Or not, that's not the right terms to use, but um, I, I guess kind of oh, understanding. Okay, so what I have in my mind, I have the notion that there's, a fundamental reality separate to um, the pursuit of happiness in our individual lives. What do you think of Why that? Think that? Why, Why do think I think that? that? Yeah. Why would um, you think that your cognition is so malformed that as it tries to optimally function, it would disconnect you from reality? No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that, um, okay, that's interesting, an interesting answer, but I guess in the yeah i do have the idea that the the understanding of what this world is is separate to my personal life meaning i definitely feel that what do you say to that i'd say to you that that is very much a post-reformation knowledge claim sure. it's exactly opposite to the socratic claim that knowledge is virtue Right and virtue and virtue means eudaimonia. It means meaning. It means happiness in the meaningful sense, not the emotional sense. Right? Because the the Greeks would say, "Well, you're trying to get closer to reality, and you're doing that because you value that for its own sake." Like, and this is true. People not only want the fulfillment of their desires; they want what fulfills their desires to be real. I use this example all the time, and I do this with my students. I'll say, how many of you are in really satisfying romantic relationships? And romantic relationships are supposed to be, in our culture, the epitome of meaning. And then I'll say, how many of you would want to know if your partner was cheating on you and that would destroy the relationship? 95% of them put up their hands. And I say, why are you doing this? Why are you destroying your happiness? And they say, because it's not real. So notice how happiness and real are not oppositional. This is the Greek point. Getting at what's real is fundamental to our happiness. 
It's fundamental. It's one of our meta drives and making like the goodness of things is not separable from their intelligibility, being connected to things in that way that, you know, they, I, I'm gaining in my self-knowledge and the world is disclosing itself. Plato talks about this in Anagogy. Those are, those are inseparably bound up together in the Socratic Platonic framework. So thinking that like thinking that, well, the pursuit of one could take me far away from the other. Isn't that, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to say this in a very friendly, affectionate manner to you. I won't be isn't, offended. That, isn't, isn't that just another version of you're born depraved, you're born twisted, and your pursuit of your desires is going to essentially cause you to fall? It certainly feels like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. you know, that's it. that seems to fit. Um, so I'm interested in, say, asking you something that I would consider like purely philosophical, like why do you think that there is, you know, that, that humans and the world exist as opposed to nothing? How would you answer a question like that? I think that that question is malformed and I'm not trying to be insulting. Let me explain what I mean. If I ask why of something, I'm saying that it, it, it exists for something other than itself. Why, why the knife? So I can cut things. Why the car? So I can travel. If I ask why ultimate reality, it's like, what? That makes no sense. You're asking, you're, you're, your very question is self-destructive because you're saying ultimate reality is for something beyond itself, mm. but then it wouldn't be ultimate reality. That makes no sense, right? The, 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 what's ultimately real and, and you know, and Eckhart says this, right? And right, and, 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 and so many people converge on this in the mystical tradition. The ultimate real has no why, because if it had a why, it wouldn't be the ultimate real. Okay, excellent answer again as well. And I'm really, I'm really appreciating this, John. I'm, 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 I'm getting uh, a lot from this. I'm, I'm being transformed. Uh, what about where, where? Can I ask where? Like, um, or, or how? Get... Like, yeah, like. Can I ask well, that, a question? That, I think that's a very good question. And um, so <laughs> that's a question that I'm pursuing. Um, and there's a question that you can't pursue just intellectually. The deepest truths are truths that are only disclosed to us as we undergo transformation and self-transcendence. So it's not something I can just pursue intellectually. I have to pursue it in conjunction with an ecology of practices that are supposed to bring me into a, a process of transformation that is lined with sort of the disclosure of, uh, a, a, you know, a, a system of truths, if I can put it that way. And so, and I'm doing this not only singularly, I'm doing this in dialogue with a lot of people from different perspectives and framework. I'm trying to do this as Socratically as I possibly can. And I am becoming convinced that the answer of how is very much an answer that looks something like this, right? That we have to see reality um, as, a as something like a process. Process isn't the right word because process is an, an unfold in time. So I'm using it like a metaphor, right? But we have to see that, and, 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 and notice that this is language already coming into prevalence within science. We have to see how things are emergent and we talk about this, we talk about how water emerges out of the hydrogen and oxygen and how life emerges out of inorganic matter and how species emerge from previous. It's emergent up. Things are getting actualized in emergence. But 
possibility, and this is where the Eastern influence on me helped me see this in the Neoplatonic and Christian traditions, and even in the Sufi tradition, to the degree to which I understand it, and a little bit in the Jewish tradition because of my friend Zevi Slavin, who's helping me understand this. But possibility is real, is just as real. So while we think about how things cause one another, we have to think about how there's also a shaping to possibility. The possibility is also shaped into potentiality. It is constrained. And those structures of potentiality are just as real as the causal patterns. So while there's causal emergence up, there is also eminent constraint downward. And that is very much paralleled in, our, in, the, in the fundamental structure of our cognition. In, in psychology, cognitive science, we talk about bottom-up processing and top-down processing. There's this, right? And it's not like this, like poles, because that's sort of a mythologization. The emanation and the emergence completely interpenetrate each other at every level, just yeah. like they do in your cognition. So the relationship between them, and this is what Eregina saw and Nicholas of Cusa saw, the relationship, and this goes back to the Neoplatonic tradition directly, explicitly, right? What they all saw was that dialectic within our cognition and the dialectic within reality and the dialectic that's possible between you and I in dialogue, like what's happening right now, they are all just three different aspects of the same underlying fundamental reality. And so for me, that's my best answer of how is it and how could we know that it is that way? And those answers are inseparably bound up with each other. Awesome. So there's, there's a whole bunch of little bits and pieces of things that are like, as you talk this, oh, I want to ask you about this and this and this. We've been speaking for an hour. How long do you have? Um, I don't mean to be rude. Let me just check my phone. Yes. Uh, so I can keep going, but now we have to keep going on sort of an ad hoc basis. If I get a particular text, I might have to say, we need to draw it to a close, but I'm happy to keep discussing until that text arrives or until 6.30 arrives. Either, well, another 25 minutes for me. I, I forget what, what is on. So yep. those, are the, those are the two ways in which uh, our discussion could- uh, Fantastic, and, and um, um, thank you for making that clear and, and I'm happy we can end immediately when that occurs. Um, yeah, so, hey, that was a great answer again. I, I really, um, like that, I um, got to have a conversation with Bernardo Castrop. Uh, oh, I've had yeah. two with Bernardo. Oh, yeah. And you disagree in certain ways, although I presented that ontology to him, but in we also connect profoundly in a lot of ways. Uh, and uh, we really found, uh, uh, and I, I know this is mutual because he shared this with me, we, we really found a deep affinity uh, to each other. And uh, I'm hoping that I'll be able to travel to Europe and spend some time with him in person or he comes to North America and we can spend some time in prison. Yeah, I would love to talk with him again. Um, and so I have, he's incredibly sharp. Um, um, uh, and I mean this as a compliment. I mean, this as a, as a, a you know, as, as a compliment born out of fellowship and friendship. I, I, uh, I needed to play my A game with Bernardo. Yeah. And I'm, and, I, and I'm not saying that while well, normally I don't in some sort of arrogant fashion. I meant I had to, I had to, like, you know, when you're sparring with somebody and you realize, hey, and then what's beautiful about this, what's beautiful about this, right? If you, you can shift from the aesthetics of winning to the aesthetics of the dance. 
and you go, this is beautiful. Well, regardless, <sighs> yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what happened with him. And that's a special kind of person. Now, I just got that text I'm saying. Oh, shoot. <laughs> no. no, no, we don't have to go yet. We don't have to okay. go yet. All right. Cool. Um, oh, wow. Wonderful. So look, how, how, when, how long have we got here? I'm just finding out right now. Again, okay. I, I don't want to be rude. No, no, go for it. So I interrupted you, but because I just wanted to make clear my attitude towards Bernardo, I, like I have utmost respect for him. So, yeah, awesome. And uh, your answer just now to the um, how of the universe um, made me want to ask that because that seemed, I mean, it's very tricky to talk about these things, but it certainly brought to mind philosophical idealism for me in your description. of uh -huh, Yeah, and, and that's, that's yeah. fair enough. And so I... Uh, I, I propose, so when I originally started to talk to Bernardo, I sort of took the stance initially, uh, and it's like a martial arts stance, right? I took the stance initially of, um, you know, just sort of pre presenting the framework of scientific realism. And, and he had some very powerful answers um, um, that I, I don't necessarily agree with. I think I had uh, powerful counter, counter answers, but I came to, oh, wow, this is like, this is an intellectually respectable position. And then I offered the ontology I just gave to you, which has a lot going for it of the Neoplatonic tradition and the mystical tradition as a way of sort of entering into dialogos rather than just debate of saying, well, I'm gonna move towards you in this way. And he didn't completely agree with this. He still, I, I think properly so, I think we are in agreement that, that what I just get, that, 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 that dialectical ontology is not the same as philosophical idealism, but he reciprocated by moving towards and saying, I can see the value in this, um, and um, and, and that, and 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 so I would say that they're not the same. There, I think there are deep differences and important differences between them, but I think they're uh, they also are close enough. Actually, they're both close enough and far enough each other that they can get into kind of an optimal grip with each other, um, which is um, helpful to both positions because when we move to these ultimates like we've got to remember socratic humility we have to remember that we're probably more ignorant than we have knowledge and um and and we should uh, and you see this in the platonic dialogues we should you know authentically you know propose our position and defend it as best we can but we shouldn't try to destroy other positions that respectfully um enter into a relationship with our own precisely because it's much more likely that will progress towards the truth between us than trying to have one position destroy um, the other. And so I wouldn't say it's philosophical idealism. I think it is still a form of uh, Neoplatonism and especially uh, the, uh, the Neoplatonic version is very much a form of realism. It's based on the idea that there are real patterns in the world and the world's patterns um, unfold of their own accord in a way to which we are responsible. And I would argue that we depend on that for our sense of realness and truth. That's where Bernardo would, of course, disagree with me. And that's, and that's one of the fundamental differences is between um, realism and idealism is their claims, which are both on both sides are very hard to articulate. What is it we are doing when we claim to sense realness? Um, and so uh, that, of course, is a fraught question. And it should be. 
I'm not complaining. Like if these questions were easy and we could just sort of do them in a disinterested fashion, we would have resolved them. Uh, and, and, and perhaps we can't ever resolve them precisely because we're actual human beings. We're not gods, right? Cool. Uh, so there's something else that I kind of wanted to comment on with that. I was walking with my friend, Simon Zippelin. We, we talk about these things quite often and I, um, I love, I love the synergy of um, the scientific method with um, spirituality and I, mm -hmm. I, like, yeah. And, and uh, we're talking about uh, Richard Dawkins and, and quite often he, could you talk about like, like um, argument and sparring versus having a, a bit of a dance and, and just like so often there is this dialogue of kind of radical Christianity versus radical um, uh, atheism. And yeah, and I, and I, I, sorry for interrupting, but I just want no. to say I really, I really want a lot of the work I've been doing, especially with trying to articulate non-theism, is to try and get underneath that debate by saying, instead of one being right and wrong, what's the shared presuppositional framework and with its, and with its, within which it's operating, and can we challenge? Is it is it intellectually responsible and respectful fashion? Can we un, can we challenge? that shared presuppositional framework. And I think we can, and non-theism says, right? The non-theism that is appropriate to things like Buddhism, the, some of the atheists are now co-opting the term non-theism in a way that I disagree with, um, right? Uh, non-theism basically says this, that framing sacredness in terms of a God is to misframe it in a fundamental way. If what you mean by a God is some kind of being, some kind of uh, consciousness, um, etc., and that right, and, 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 and related ideas that that that's associated with a kind of perfection. It's largely about us believing in it. There's a whole there's a whole family network of often unexamined question. Uh, prop, sorry, not unexamined questions, unexamined assumptions shared by both sides. Yes. And all that happens is one side says yeah. yes to them all and the other side says totally. no to them all. Yeah. And I want to reject that. Yeah. And and I, like when you say I had to bring my A game with Bernardo and it's sort of like, it's so easy to shoot down some of those extreme uh, unexamined assumptions as well. Yes. Um, John, I'm feeling that um, I should let you go. Um, yeah. And hey, look, it has been an absolute pleasure. I made a whole list of notes, which I don't normally do of what I was going to ask you. And I didn't ask you about any of them, but I, I, I really loved the, the flow of our conversation. I got a lot from it personally. And um, it was a real pleasure to, to get to talk with you. Thank you. It's a great pleasure talking to you. And I, I hope the fact that I'm sort of <laughs> slightly in a text conversation wasn't rude. I wasn't trying. Um, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, you know, if you want to talk again and continue on, uh, please invite me back. I, I'd be happy to talk again. Wonderful. I, I will do that. Thanks very much. Um, have a have a great evening. Great pleasure meeting you. And you have a, a great day. I, I, I take it it's morning for you. Or yeah, afternoon? yeah. It's uh, twenty past eight here. I'm going to go grab another coffee. Yeah. Well, enjoy your coffee and enjoy your day. I meant what I said. If you want to talk again? Happy to do so. I really um, enjoyed this conversation. Awesome. Thank you. I definitely will. Okay. Take good care. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear oh, me? 
I can, yeah. Um, all right, sorry about that. I ended the meeting rather than left the meeting on my phone. <laughs> That's okay. Um, what, I, what I wanted to share with you was um, that I was a little bit uh, nervous about meeting with you. I've been uh, watching your lectures and um, you, you've got this, this towering academic intellect and um, I'm very scatty and disorganized with my thoughts and I, I was a little bit nervous and um, I think it's very funny that it's, I've ended up this extremely scattered with you first thing. Um, <laughs> um, well, that, that's actually made it uh, uh, more personal and I feel more connected to you. So this is excellent. Excellent, cool. Um, and for me too. Um, but I, I also, have you, do you ever observe that, um, that sometimes when you think a certain thing is going to be a, way, a, a certain way, in particular with a, a certain person, if you think they're going to be a way, then they, they act that way? Or if you think you're going to be perceived a way, then you're more likely to act that way unconsciously? Um, yeah, I mean, I think first impressions, I, it's been my uh, extended experience that my first my first impressions are both powerful and frequently uh, incorrect. Uh, yes. So I've, I've been trying very much to be much uh, more open and take longer to form even an initial opinion of somebody. Um, so very much so, very much so. Cool, yeah. Um, cool, so John, I, I might just jump in, I guess. Um, uh, I'll do my introduction. So hello, welcome to another episode of the Unfinished Cubby. Actually, John, do you know what? I'm going to do a double take on this. I'll tell you why, because I made some notes and I thought of the way that I wanted to introduce it today. And I'm going to read directly from that. Um, all right, take two.